Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all. It is good to be back. Uh, welcome back from Thanksgiving. I hope and pray that uh, you have had a wonderful Thanksgiving, a wonderful time, whether it was with family or friends or, or just resting at home. I pray that uh, it has just been a very sweet time for you uh, this past week, and uh, I pray that uh, uh, you were able to catch a break uh, from just work and the mundane and school and whatever it is, and just to be able to focus on family, to be able to focus a little bit on worship, maybe even to be able to rest. Um, I hope that it has been a wonderful time for you as we prepare uh, for what the Lord will do, not only in this week, but in the weeks ahead. Now, uh, with that being said, I do want to let you know what's about to happen in our church, okay? So we are about to start a whole new section of 1 Corinthians today, okay? Um, just want you to be aware of that, where Paul's then going to instruct the Corinthian Christians on orderly worship. And we're going to see that begin today here in chapter 11, and it's going to really continue on through chapter 14. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to introduce this first topic to you today and then just kind of let you just uh, rest on this topic, to pray through this topic, um, to, to, to not badger your pastor about this topic today, and then uh, we're going to move from this topic into a season of Advent where you're going to be reminded of, of love and hope and peace and joy and not leave today angry, and then come back Advent without love and without hope and without joy and without peace. So we're going to go ahead and just jump into this thing, hit this passage hard today. If, you, if you've already been reading 1 Corinthians 11, you probably know what I'm talking about. If you don't, then just stand by. We're going to get to it in a moment, okay? Uh, so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to offend you. That's not my goal. The word may offend you a little bit today, uh, but I want you to kind of pause and just listen a little bit, okay? And then what we're going to do is we're going to have four weeks in Advent leading up to Christmas. We'll uh, worship together. Um, looking forward to that as we gather uh, for Christmas Eve this year um, in that worship service. And then in January, we're going to jump right back in uh, to our series as we continue to uh, walk through 1 Corinthians. So I want to go ahead and and just go ahead and get into our passage this morning because we really have uh, a lot to unpack this morning. So um, I, I want us to bear that in mind. So not a lot of introduction, not a lot of, uh, of, of talk in terms of setting up this passage. We just want to go ahead and, and jump into it because what we're about to see and find out is we are dealing with a very hot topic issue and a very controversial passage this morning. Now, before we get in, um, I just want to share with you uh, some thoughts that I want you to bear in mind as we prepare to look at 1 Corinthians 11 together. Um, the first thought I want you to bear in mind is this. This particular passage that we're going to be looking at today, verses 2 through 16, is described by many scholars as one of the most divisive and controversial passages in the Bible. To the point where there have been many pastors, some of whom I've listened to preparing for this summer, who have said that this passage probably shouldn't be taught from the pulpit. Well, thanks be to God, it's in the Word, and we're going to preach it because we're walking through 1 Corinthians. Okay? Secondly, I want us to understand today that when you look at verses 2 through 16, you're going to see a lot of phrases that need to be understood in context. And the reality is that there are going to be several phrases that we're not going to be able to cover specifically in one sermon. And so what's going to happen is we're going to attempt to, to broad stroke this passage to get an idea of contextually what it is that, that Paul is addressing. And then we're going to save some of the specifics within the text to be discussed at a later date. Okay, and you'll see what I mean as we get into this passage in just a moment. Now, no, that does not mean we're skipping over stuff today. It just means that there's some nuanced phrases that we're going to see 
that the meaning of that phrase may not just jump out to us clearly. And so that may be a conversation that we have another day because it may take about an hour or two to unpack. And I'm quite confident that none of you want to sit here for the next two or three hours kind of walking through some of the ramifications of what Paul is saying here. Now, that leads to uh, truth number three that I want us to understand, and that is this. As a believer in Christ, we need to understand that there are some passages in the Bible that were written in such a way as to fit the historical context of a particular time and a particular place. Not that it doesn't apply to us today, but rather we may not know the specifics of what was going on, but we do acknowledge that this may not be the same issue for our church or the Western church today. Which leads us to truth number four, which is this. Though there is a historical context to consider as it relates to culture, let's recognize that there are still some long-lasting principles and some observations that transcend both time and place. Thus, from a theological standpoint, the text itself can still be applied to the people of God today. Meaning this, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to study it. Just because we can say, well, Maybe that was the issue then, but that's not the issue for us today. Doesn't mean that there's, there's not some sort of particular truth that we can take away from a particular passage today that would apply to our current context. So as we study chapter 11 through 14, I want us to understand that Paul is starting again a new section of his letter that's going to focus specifically on corporate worship. And so that's going to be the, the theme that is played out beginning here in chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14. And, what, and, and not only is Paul going to focus specifically on corporate worship, but he's going to focus on what happens when believers gather together for the purpose of worship. And so here's Paul's goal from chapter 11 to chapter 14. Paul wants the church to be properly ordered and structured. Now, as one scholar said about Paul's point, he says it this way. He says, a church that is ordered rightly conducts itself so that the members of the church are edified. So here again is Paul's point, and here again is Paul's goal for the church at Corinth. He wanted the church to be properly ordered so that the believers in Christ are edified and that God and God alone is the one who is glorified. So just for some context, what I want us to see is what was now happening amongst the Corinthian Christians. Now again, as we said in the church in Corinth, in Corinth itself, the community itself, the people prided themselves on individualism, which is something we see running rampant through our society today. But what was happening in the, in the Corinthian day was that this, individual, this individualism was now causing harm amongst the believers and creating division within the church itself. You see, the Corinthian Christians were seeking their own selfish desires instead of seeking the edification of the whole church. And they based all of this on the new freedom that they now had in Christ. Thus, their individualism, or better yet, their pride of self, was now leading to to tension and to arguments and to division within their own ranks. And what was happening was some people were affected and hurt by it. Others in the church just paid no mind to it and chose to ignore it. And then what was ultimately happening is that their witness in the community was being damaged by this newfound freedom and cause that they now had. 
So Paul writes to the church. And he seeks in his writing at this point in chapter 11 to turn their attention back to God by qualifying their roles regarding gender. And then ultimately his end goal was to seek God's glory as they sought proper order in worship. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and man, I hope you do because you're going to need it. I would encourage you to turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin reading Paul's words here in verse 2. And once you have found your place in the Word of God, I want to invite you to now, if you are able, to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Now, by the grace of God, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies, or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a, man not, or for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thank Thanks be to God. Well, you can be seated. How are we feeling this morning? Pretty good? Good. Let's go ahead and get into this. Now, I want to go ahead and acknowledge this morning that as you read this passage, you probably begin to pick up on some of the nuances and some of the, the division and the, the tension that have been created by this passage. You see, this particular passage has been used way out of context. In fact, it's probably one of the most misquoted uh, scriptures in terms of uh, some of the issues that we see in our day. People have used this passage to justify who should be leading in the church and who should be preaching in the church. People have used this passage to justify why uh, men should only wear certain clothing and, and women should wear another particular type of clothing. There, there have been people who have used this passage to sit there and say, this is why men are now superior or more dominant uh, than the women around them and thus treat their women as if they're subjected to men as if they were slaves. 
There's even another group who have taken this passage way out of context and basically said that if you're a woman who comes into the church, then this is how you ought to wear your hair every time you walk in, in a bun with a covering. And then every man who gives you a command, whether they're age 12 and up, you have to be faithful to that command. But here's the problem with all of those thoughts. All of them come back to this particular passage And I believe that what we're going to see today is they are completely missing the point of what it is that Paul was trying to teach. You see, Paul begins his discussion here on corporate worship with the issue of how women, particularly a small group of women, were presenting themselves in the church in Corinth during his day. Now, as a good leader, notice how Paul begins with a word of encouragement, and then he jumps in to the subject of Headship, which is tied to how a woman's attire and attitude really reflects directly upon the relationship that she shares not only with her husband, but the relationship she now shares with the church. Now, Paul is going to then unpack some of his own theological views and how those views are now tied to both the role of men and the role of women, both in marriage, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, but also in uh, the creation account that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and again in Genesis chapter 2. Now again, Paul's emphasis here is on a woman's proper role in relationship or in relation to the men or better yet to their husbands, which ultimately again has led to a great misunderstanding as we have sought to apply this passage to our current cultural context. And then we quickly realize that when we take this passage seeking to apply it to our own cultural context, we just don't get it. And then what Paul will do in this final section of the text, is he will then have a discussion where he teaches that this particular issue is not just specific to the Corinthian Christians, but rather is a teaching that he has shared with multiple churches, and now those churches affirm what it is that he's teaching. So let's get back into the text and see what Paul has to say about God, about gender, and about his glory. And this morning, we're going to do that through several observations from the text itself. So here is observation number one. We find it in verse two. Notice that Paul begins a controversial topic or conversation with a word of encouragement. So observation number one is Paul gives us a word of encouragement. Notice how Paul opens by commending the Corinthian Christians for remembering him and what it is that he has taught. Again, in verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now again, this is a lesson that I believe we need to pay attention to today. This is a lesson that I believe that we as Christians today can actually learn from Paul. You see, opening a conversation with someone, especially if we know that conversation might lead to a discussion that may go back and forth and may even become heated at times, We need to pay attention to the fact that that opening a conversation with a word of encouragement is an easy way to gain the goodwill of the people who we are now talking with, or better yet, are now listening to. Notice how Paul says in this passage, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything. Now again, let's pay attention to Paul's words here because I think Paul is actually exaggerating here a little bit because the reality is this. When you continue to read this text today and you get into chapter 12, chapter 13, 14, and following, or even if you go back and read 
the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, clearly the Corinthian Christians didn't get everything right. And so there were some things that Paul was not pleased with. However, generally speaking, overall for Paul, they were doing a pretty good job. In fact, he speaks of how pleased he was with their ability to keep the traditions, is what he talks about. Now, when Paul speaks of the traditions, what Paul is saying is that he was pleased with the fact that the church itself had maintained much of the doctrine and much of the behaviors and posture that he had taught them when he was there with them in Corinth. Now, again, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a good lesson for us this morning when we are addressing one another. You see, if we want to gain the goodwill of a person, if we want to gain the ear, the listening ear of another person, especially if we know that we're about to have a hard conversation with them, or especially if we know that we're about to to engage in a conversation that that we may not see eye to eye on, then it's a a good way to begin that conversation is with a word of encouragement. Because here's the reality. Too often time in today's society, we are too quick to be critical of one another. And then here's what ultimately happens. When our first word to someone is critical, when our first word to someone is constantly questioning what it is that they're doing and why it is that they're doing it, then what happens is we will begin to wear people out if we continue to be critical with them with our first step in every conversation. In fact, if we are quick to be critical, that is what we will be known for. If we are quick to be critical and quick to question, then here's what will ultimately happen. People will cringe when they think about meeting with you. The best way I can equate this is when you're sitting in a classroom and all of a sudden your teacher gets the phone call. Now, I know in today's classrooms they have phones in the room and then the teacher says, hey, such and such, you are now being called to the office. In my day, they just had intercom, so everybody heard you were being called to the office. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Very rarely was it a good thing to be called to the principal's office. Very rarely. Even as someone who who spent a little bit of time as a teacher themselves, when I got called to the headmaster's office as a teacher, it normally wasn't for an attaboy. It was because something needed to be corrected. And so what would happen? Naturally, you would begin to cringe, you would begin to play out how that conversation was going to go, and then you would even become discouraged because you knew what was coming. But notice what Paul says here in his opening statement. He teaches us that as believers in Christ, we should begin with a word of encouragement. That we should start with a good word. Because here's the reality. Even when we got to have hard conversations with people, even when we come to moments where we're being critical of one another, chances are, for the most part, like the Corinthian Christians, we may be getting it mostly right. And that's exactly what was happening here for the Corinthian Christians. You see, they were getting it mostly right in terms of doctrine. They were getting it mostly right in terms of traditions. They were getting it mostly right in terms of worship. And they were getting it mostly right when it came to a woman's behavior and attire and attitude in the church. So again, what Paul gives us is is not really an issue that, that affects the majority of the women and the majority of the church. But rather, it's a minority that's beginning to affect the majority. And so Paul begins with a word of encouragement, which then leads us to observation number two. After coming off a word of encouragement, 
Paul now jumps into the issue, which is the cultural issue of his day. We see this in verses 3 through 6. Observation number 2 is the cultural issue of Paul's day. Notice that Paul gets into this issue at hand, and the issue at hand is the attire and the actions of women and how it's now bringing either honor or shame to their homes. Now again, ladies, I want you to hear what's about to happen next because you're not being picked on today, okay? That is not the goal of what is happening as we jump into this text. So let's get into it. Verse 3. Verse 3 becomes the theological foundation for the discussion to follow, though many have argued its meaning here. Notice what Paul says. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Notice how Paul gives us a threefold description of order in this passage. It begins with God, who is the head of Christ. Then it is Christ, who is the head of man. And then man is the head, or husband is the head of her wife. Now again, the word I want us to pay attention to is the word head. Some have debated the meaning of this word and said that what Paul was talking about is that the word head literally means the word source. Or better yet, the word head literally means the word foremost. And this has been hotly debated for many, many years by much smarter people. But I believe for us today that this word literally means authority. And here's the reason for that meaning. If you flip over to Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, you'll see Paul addressing the roles of husbands and wives. And here Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now again, the word that Paul uses for head in Ephesians 5 literally translates to the word authority. And here we are back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and Paul is setting that same tone. Now again, don't misinterpret this passage. Husbands, you are not your wives' saviors. Amen and glory to God. Because we are imperfect. However... Men, like Christ, called to be the head, are to now lead humbly and thus biblically be the authority over the home so that there is now order in the home. Now again, notice how Paul uses the words wife and husband here, but I also believe that he's speaking to the roles of men and women in general as well. Now again, the issue at play here is how women presented themselves in worship. So let's not lose sight of that and whether or not it was appropriate for worship. And so as we continue in the text, Paul's going to dive more into this matter as we get into the discussion on veils. Look with me at verse 4. Paul says that every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Notice how in this text Paul opens by saying that if a man covers his head, while praying or prophesying, then he dishonors his head. Now again, this 
is a cultural issue in a culture that is based on honor or shame. It is one or the other. It is never both. Now, many people would read this and think, and this is why men should never wear a hat. But the problem is that's not what Paul was talking about. You see, in order to understand what Paul means when he says men should not cover their head, you have to understand what was going on contextually for Paul. You see, Paul is now writing to a culture that firmly held to honor and firmly held to shame. So context is key here. Paul's actually arguing that for the Christian men, it dishonored God when they covered their heads in worship. Why? Because men who worshipped Pagan deities were the ones who covered their heads. And Paul said, that should not be true of you. Also, men who who covered their heads in worship did so in order to show off their wealth or to show off their prosperity or better yet, to show off their elite status. So so notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, the men who are doing this are, are being selfish because they are making this moment in worship about them. You see, what Paul is speaking about in these verses is about humility. It's about recognizing that your wealth and your status does not make you greater or more important than the person who is worshiping next to you. Because the same Jesus Christ who saved you is the same Jesus Christ who saved them. And God could care less about your status. We get into verse 5 and we get back to Paul's central theme, and again, the argument for this entire passage. Now again, contextually, dealing with the the cultural issues, some women in the Corinthian church believed that, that they could now dress and behave however they wanted because they had been liberated from any social or cultural limitations in Christ. So all of a sudden they believed that they they had all these newfound wonderful freedoms and so they were taking advantage of these freedoms and they began to abuse these freedoms. And so some have have gone into this passage and began to to read into it and say, well, now wait a minute, does this mean that all women should have long hair? Well, now hold on a minute, let's back up a little bit. Because before we even get into that, let's notice that Paul speaks of women prophesying. Now again, some women have taken this word prophesying, and some churches have taken this word prophesying. They say, see, women can preach in the pulpit and they can be pastors. Now, this is one of those topics that we can get into for hours. So let me just touch on it briefly and let you let me answer that question by saying no. Paul actually speaks to this more specifically when you get into 1 Timothy, when you get into Titus. And he talks about who should be leading the church and who should be preaching from the pulpit. Let's not get lost in the weeds and therefore, to use a golf analogy, miss the fairway. Again, the argument was for the role of women in corporate worship. And so Paul says, listen, if a woman prays in the church and she is not veiled, then she dishonors Christ and her husband. Now, again, this seems like harsh words coming from Paul. But again, let's understand Paul's point in his context Paul was writing again to a church that was living under the authority and living under the influence of a Greco-Roman society. And so Paul says to the women, listen, when you come into the worship, be sure that you veil yourself. And he literally, we have two reasons based on culture as to why Paul calls for women to do this. The first one being this. Because in a Greco-Roman society, a woman who wore her hair down was seen by the world as someone who was sexually available as if she were a prostitute. 
Now, clearly, we don't think that way, do we, today? No. But this is what was happening in the church at Corinth during Paul's day. The second reason that Paul makes this point is because women began to adorn their hairs in the church like the men with the head coverings. They began to adorn themselves with with jewelry and adorn their hair with flowers and crowns and, and, and with perfume so that everyone could see their wealth and their status. Again, for Paul speaking in terms of women veiling themselves, this was a matter of selfishness. And so Paul was calling for women to glorify Jesus Christ in how they presented themselves to the church. Again, Paul wanted women like men to come into the church and to come humbly before the Lord and not adorning themselves to brag about their status or their wealth or whatever popularity they thought they had. Now to unpack his reasoning a bit further for women, Notice Paul makes the comparison and equates uh, the head being uncovered to that of a woman who just shaved her head because of the shame that she has now brought. Now again, this is a contextual argument that Paul is making. So Paul, if he were to walk into this room today, he would not look around and say to the women who have hair that are at your shorter length or shorter and say, hmm, you are disgracing your home. Paul would not say that of us today. But rather, in his day, Paul says this because of how the Greco-Roman world viewed a shaved head or short hair. They viewed short hair on women as shameful, disgraceful, and no respectable woman would ever do that. Thus, Paul now makes this comparison to show the women the shame that they're bringing on themselves and on their husbands and on their church and on Christ himself for how they are dressing and how they are acting. Paul literally says, listen, there's no difference in the selfishness and the pride that you're showing. There's no difference between that and and a woman who shames herself in this society. So you see, for Paul in in our day today, he's literally saying to the women today, listen, don't come into the church and bring shame upon yourself. In other words, don't walk in and make worship about you. Don't Don't walk in hoping and desiring to be the center of attention because the reality is this, the center of attention when it comes to worship is God and God alone. This is why we're able to explain our services and acknowledge, like Corey acknowledged earlier, that God is wise, that God is sovereign, and that God is good. Why? Because the only thing that matters is God and God being glorified. Again, we gather because of what God has done. We don't gather because we look good doing it. Footnote, if that's why you're here today, then at the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity for you to come forward and pray and repent with some elders, and we can get this right, okay? Moving on. Paul had come across a moment where the women of Corinth, 
particularly the Corinthian Christian women who were refusing to cover their hair, their heads. They were letting their hair down. They were filling it with jewels. And this clearly showed that they were not relating nor following well the male leadership of their home nor the male leadership of the church. And so Paul says to the women, for the sake of the gospel, respect your home. For the sake of the gospel, respect the church. Don't make this about you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is easy for us to read these passages and to take offense by them. It's easy for us to take offense by what we just read, but let's pay attention to the fact that this is a cultural issue that is now at play here. And so what Paul was concerned about was the appropriate attire for men and women in the church. This is not, again, an argument for suits. We live in central Florida. If you wear a suit, praise be to God. How do you do it? But this is not a mandate that every man who walks in the church should be wearing a black suit or a blue suit. That's not the, cult, that's not the mandate here. That would be crazy, culturally speaking. This is not a, a mandate upon women to come in and wear long dresses all the way down to your ankles and have your hair up in a bun and that's the only way you can come and worship. That's not the mandate here. However, in today's context, we need to see that God has given us leadership to follow. There is an order that God has given us both in the home and in the church. And when it comes to the church, when it comes to worship, Paul says that we should dress and act in a way that is appropriate and that is not distracting. So for the men in the room, just to, again, bring this back to the fellows, contextually, it would probably be inappropriate for you to walk in on a Sunday morning wearing a bed sheet as if it were a toga. Nobody wants to see that. That's distracting. Don't do it. It probably would be inappropriate if you walked in wearing a, a, a black shirt with a white, like a white collar declaring yourself a priest. That would not fit our context. It would make for an interesting conversation. One you may not like having, but hey, we can have it. It wouldn't make sense for our context, though. Ladies, the same is true for you. It wouldn't make sense for any of us, men or women, to come walking into this room in our bathing suits saying, look at us, we've done our best for the Lord. No, we haven't. We haven't. And ladies, this is something that we need to take seriously. Because let me tell you, as a, as a husband who has a wife and is seeking to raise four girls, shopping is a nightmare. And, and I'm not saying because I don't like shopping. I actually kind of enjoy it. It's a great way to talk, converse, hear what's going on in the life of my girls. And they talk to me more because daddy has the debit card. <laughs> they get how this game goes. Even the eight-year-old understands it now. That's scary. But ladies, I feel for you. Because here's the reality. You now live in a Western world that seeks to sexualize you based on what you dress. And how you dress. Thus here's what's happening. Your garments. Are being made with less and less fabric. So I want to say to you in grace. I see it. I get it. I don't understand the difficulty of it. Because that's clearly not the case for a fella. 
But the reality for you is the same reality for our men. When it comes to choosing clothing, when it comes to choosing how you adorn yourself, seek that which honors Jesus Christ. Seek that which is appropriate for worship. And don't make it about yourself. Now again, as we come back to our text, we're going to see that Paul is now going to build on his argument a little bit. And he's going to move now from what is appropriate in worship from a, from a cultural standpoint to moving to what is now our third observation, which is this. We see that Paul builds upon the current cultural issue and what he does is he begins to lay, observation number three, he lays the theological foundation. We see this in verses 7 through 12. Notice how Paul's going to go, really, uh, to give a further reason. He's going to give a further reason for proper attire for women in worship, but he's now, again, going to move from this cultural issue to a discussion with a theological foundation. Look with me again in verse 7. Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We can just close in prayer now, right? I don't need to unpack that. We're good? Notice that Paul says that men should not wear a covering since he is the image and the glory of God. But here's what I want us to pay attention to. Notice the word ought. Paul is literally signifying necessity and obligation for men to follow the word of God. Now, Paul probably had in mind Genesis chapter 1 here when humans were set apart by God since they were created in the image of God. Paul then goes on to talk about how man is made for the glory of God. Again, in a shame and honor culture and society, this would mean that men should bring honor and praise to God in all things. And then here's what Paul does. Paul takes this one step further and begins to talk about the women. And he says that women are made for the glory of man. Now again, there have been some who have wrongfully used this passage to justify and argue that women are lesser than men. That women are to subject themselves to all men as if they were slaves to men. There are some who have used this passage to justify why women should just be left alone at home doing nothing but taking beatings from their men. And that's not at all what Paul was talking about here. You see, when we go back to Scripture, especially when you go back to Genesis 1, we see that both men and women were created in the image of God. Thus, Paul's focus is back on husbands and wives and how wives, especially the Corinthian Christian wives, are to now honor their husbands in their relationships and how they present themselves within the church. Again, in hearing these words, don't lose sight of the fact that the women of Corinth were not living with this thought in mind. Many of them were abandoning their husband to live out their own way. If you go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, we see a people who thought in their own minds that for the sake of holiness, for the sake of sanctification, they should just leave their spouse and do whatever it is they want to do. And so Paul says, no. There is an order to what you have been called to. 
In fact, you move on to verse 8, and we see Paul explain the distinction between men and women even further. He says, for man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Again, Paul clearly has taken the church back to Genesis chapter 2 at this point, where God created woman from man. Now again, this does not signal that a male's superiority within the church. However, Paul did have in mind the created order of roles that was distinct for both men and for women. You see, Paul shared this word in order to remind the women of Corinth that one of their responsibilities was to bring honor to their men, especially their husbands. And so wives, I want, I want to ask the question. Listen, all wives, I get it. Husbands can be a challenge. But the question is this. Wives, how are you honoring your husbands? And by honoring, I don't mean making sure lunch is ready. I'm not talking about making sure dinner is good to go and it's their favorite meal every time you gather. It's not what I'm talking about. But rather, remember, Paul was talking about order in worship. And the goal of order in worship was for the purpose of edification. So wives, let me ask you this question. How are you encouraging your husbands? How are you edifying your husbands? Now, I want to say this with grace and, and with as, as much clarity as I can give because we live in a day in a society where, where we just want everybody to be independent. Men can be independent. Women can be independent. But the reality is that's not how God designed marriage. God designed marriage for two people to be codependent upon one another. And yet, here's the sad reality. There are many women who look at their men as if they wish they'd never met them. As if they wish they never married them. And so what do they do? They use and they abuse their men with their words. Ladies, taking care of a home is a challenge. Nobody's denying that challenge. Working and taking care of a home is an extreme challenge. There is no man in the world that can ever understand what it's like taking care of a home. There is no man in the world who will ever, not can, will ever understand what it's like giving birth to a child. And no, the man cold is not a close uh, common denominator there. That's not true. Stop that nonsense. However, women, I want you to understand something. Your husbands don't want to come home every day to a wife who is ready to verbally beat them. And so I want to ask you, ladies, how are you encouraging your men? How are you serving your men? How are you, how are you seeking to edify your husband when they come home? They may not be the perfect spiritual leader, but how are you seeking in this moment to lift them up. Again, not a matter of superiority here. But rather, a way to honor the created order. You see, when we think about that order, especially when Paul says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, we have to go back and understand Genesis 2 a bit. Because according to the creation account, women were created as a helper to man. And can I be the one who says, 
All glory to God for that. Okay? Because if men were left to their own accord, it would be dangerous. But thanks be to God that he created a helper. So according to Paul, when he says these words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, women were created by God from man in order to assist men, or better yet, complement men in terms of extending God's rule over the world. In other words... When husbands and wives understand created order and wives understand their role of encouragement and edification and husbands understand their created order in serving and loving their wives and their families and leading them faithfully, then in that marriage, God is seen and God will be glorified. And there is peace in the order. Now here's what happens. We get to verse 10, and we find that the, really a passage here that's really caused some division, and it really could probably be in a sermon in and of itself. So let's just kind of paint this passage with a wide brush, if you will, to see how it fits in the context of Paul's theological foundation for women. Now Paul is basically suggesting at, in this particular passage and the previous verses um, the theological reasons why Christian or why Corinthian women should really veil themselves. And as we've already stated previously, this really has nothing to do with inferiority versus superiority, but rather it has to do with simple obedience to Jesus Christ and honoring him and how we now dress for worship. But here's what happens. We come across this phrase because of the angels. And so what are we supposed to do with that phrase? Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, scholars have debated this phrase and the meaning of this passage for quite some time. In fact, if you were to look up that phrase, I would go ahead and assure you, you're going to find roughly more than 10, if not more, theological views on that particular verse. So this particular phrase kind of lends itself to another conversation at some point. But the, but the best argument for this is probably that Paul was alluding to the fact that there were messengers who were among them that were sent to observe what was happening, be encouraged by what was happening, and then seek the good in worship, desiring that created order was being maintained. Now again, simple, broad stroke explanation for what Paul's talking about. But again, Paul was focused on ordered worship. So we get to verse 11 and 12, and we see now Paul qualified his argument as to avoid any misunderstanding. Notice what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now again, Paul wants to avoid any suggestion or conclusion that would lead anyone to believe that women were inferior to men. And so Paul says, look, women came into existence by man, and now man comes into the world through woman. Thus we now see man and woman complementing one another, and we see the beauty and the value of the two sexes through the differences in their function within created order. And then Paul closes this argument by simply saying this, and all things are from God. Thus reminding the church that the Lord is the ultimate source of life and all that is good. Now you see, brothers and sisters, I want us to understand that Paul now gives us some theological foundation for the need to understand the roles of men and women, both in the home and within the church. And he makes this argument from the account of created order. And it's through that 
telling or retelling of the created order that God now gives us order within the home. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the reason why we get offended by passages like this today and the reason why we get this order confused is because we have now allowed society itself to tell us how we are now to think and to feel about these passages. At the same time, society is not solely responsible for the miscommunication or better yet, misinformation on these passages. Rather, I personally believe that men have forgotten their biblical God-given role to lead their home. And as Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us, to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. So you see, men... This is on us. It's on us when we don't faithfully lead our homes. It's on us when we don't biblically lead our homes. And so Paul teaches us that God in his sovereignty has appointed, directed, and blessed both sexes, both male and female, with diversity and unity within the roles that they now play in the home and the roles they have in the church, all for the glory of God. So as a woman today, a man today, a husband, a wife, how are you living out your God-given role in your home? How are you living out your God-given role within the church? How are you now teaching the creation order to your kids and how that order calls us to peace? How that order now calls us to live in harmony with one another? Because that order wasn't given just for subjugation. It was given so that God would be glorified as we seek to honor Him in the roles that He has given us. You see, this is important for us to understand because Paul does speak a good bit to husbands and wives here, but I want to tell you, if you're single in the room, this is something you need to be thinking about as well. If you're a single lady in the room and you start dating a man, let me tell you something. If that man is not solid and firm in his foundation upon the Word of God, or he's not willing to at least grow in that, you may want to take a step back. He may not be ready. Men, if you're single in the room and you're, you're saying, man, I just want to get married one day, um, let me ask you this question. Are you faithfully prepared to faithfully lead your wife biblically? Are you faithfully prepared to, pre- to present her as pure before the Lord as Ephesians 5 calls for? Are you, are you faithfully shepherding? Are you prepared to shepherd a woman in that way? And to encourage her by, by, by laying down your life as Christ laid down his life for the church? Are you ready for that? Because that's what you've been called to do. And not by man, by the word of God itself. Now notice what happens in our passage. Paul's now going to turn his attention again back to the believers and call both men and women of the Corinthian church to think and the reason for themselves what it is that he has taught to them, which leads us to observation number four, our final observation this morning. Verse 13 through 16. Observation number four. Paul gives us now an argument from reason. So we, we've covered the cultural issue. We've moved to the theological foundation. We started with a word of encouragement. And now Paul says, hey, you now have the information, so reason amongst yourselves. 
Notice how Paul has already addressed all the issues that have been laid before them. And then we get to, to verse 13 and Paul comes back to the church asking them to reason amongst themselves. He says in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Notice how Paul appeals to the Corinthian Christians and now asks them to assess this information for themselves. He literally looks at them and says, hey, listen, you're smart. You, you understand this. You've been taught a lot. So now you tell me, what does the word of God say in terms of how you are now called to live? Literally what Paul does in this moment is he points them back to a similar phrase that he just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15, when he calls them the reason for themselves. And so Paul asks them, listen, if you are able to judge rightly, then the reality is this, you will be able to discern fittingly that it is not proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. Reason that for yourselves. Do you see it? Again, when Paul says these words, He's saying them in such a way so that the church would be edified because Paul doesn't want women and the way they are dressed and the way they behave to become a distraction when it comes to worship as a few have done within the Corinthian church. It's the same thing that he calls the men to as well. And then we get to verses 14 and 15 and notice what Paul does. He not only uh, calls for reason itself, but notice now he begins to speak of the biological nature of men and women, which really should be, which really as men and women, we should be able to reason for ourselves. Based on biology, we should be able to say, hey, as a man and a woman, do you understand how you are to act in the church? But here's the problem and how it fits in our cultural context today. Science has told us that we don't know what a man or woman is anymore. Now this is important for us to understand. Because here's the reality. We live in a world that tries to teach us that there are now more than two genders. They now try to teach us that there's more than the two that we know, male and female. They've even tried to separate that there's a difference between the word gender and the word sexuality. Or sex, if you will. And I'm not talking about intimacy. I'm talking about when people ask you, what sex are you? I'm male or female. Mm -mm, I'm not talking about your gender. Those words are synonymous. And so here's what's happened. Not only have, has the world today tried to confuse us on the meaning of gender, but now it's tried to confuse us on how a male or a female should even look. Now again, don't misinterpret Paul. He's not arguing for men to have short hair or women to only have long hair. Rather, the argument is more in line with not blurring the lines of how you look in order to create confusion with those around you. You see, for Paul, he understood that mankind was made of two sexes. There was male and female. Thus, based upon his argument, seeking to confuse the genders based upon appearance or seeking same-sex attractions would be unlawful based on both reason from the word and based on the natural order given to us by God according to Genesis 2. And so Paul says this, men, don't wear your hair so long or dress in such a way that all of a sudden nobody can tell whether or not you're a man or a woman. Women, don't wear your hair so short and your clothes in such a way that people can no longer distinguish whether or not you're a man. Now, some would say, well, shouldn't it be about what I like? 
Paul would say no. Because again, your personal preference doesn't matter when it comes to the gospel. Your personal preference actually takes a back seat when it comes to the gospel. And so for Paul, our reasoning, what we already know to be true, should teach us that there is a distinction between the sexes and those distinctions are echoed in culture even during Paul's day. And yet here we are in the most civilized society in history. And that society's leaders is trying to tell us that you can't tell what is man and what is woman. And so Paul teaches that when it comes to our adornment, when it comes to how we present ourselves, when it comes to how we behave, we should do, those, do so in such a way that it honors God. And how do we do it in such a way that it honors God? We do it because we, we dress and adorn ourselves with the understanding and the way that He has now created us and how He has now called us to worship Him. Now we move on to this text and we get to this last phrase where it says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And there have been many who want to argue that the hair is also a veil as well. However, I believe Paul is saying at this point, even for the sake of your long hair, a veil in and of itself is necessary. Again, Paul is seeking not to bring women down. He's seeking to protect them from what may be said or done to them based upon their appearance. And then we get to verse 16. Verse 16, Paul addresses those who may not agree with him and say, hey, you may become contentious upon hearing this. And Paul says, listen, you who push the boundaries need to understand that in this instance, what you're, not, what you're doing is not appropriate for worship. It's not giving glory to your God. And then Paul takes this one step further by saying that even in the churches he has taught this to, they have not only received this teaching, therefore it's not a one-off lesson for the Corinthian Christians, but rather it's an issue that all the churches now agree upon. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, hear Paul's words as we sum up this text. Freedom in Christ is a good thing. Freedom in Christ is a beautiful thing. But freedom that takes us away from biblical wisdom is not commended and will ultimately take us down a path where we will depart from the Word of God altogether. You cannot live in the freedom of Christ and then deem the Word of God unnecessary as if it doesn't exist. You see, freedom in Christ comes with a price. And that price is the call to holiness. And if you don't believe me, let me bring you back to Western society. Look around at the churches today. Look at how many churches are unwilling to teach truth today. Look at how many churches are unwilling to stand upon truth today. And I promise you, if you rewind their history, you will see that they departed from the Word of God and it all started with one simple compromise. And that compromise 
was made to the order that God had established. An order that he established for both men and women. And so as God's people, let's remain faithful to created order and what it is that the word of God has commanded us. Now again, I recognize that working out the implications of this passage is not easy, nor is it for the faint of heart. And there are so many other things that we could have gotten into this morning. But what I want us to understand is this. For Paul, his desire was for the good of the church. His desire was for the glory of God. And so Paul teaches that we all need to be clear on the distinctions that now exist between men and women. And God gave us those distinctions. God gave those distinctions to men and women that were unique. He called them beautiful. And now, as his chosen people, those distinctions need to be preserved. And so as God's people, let's not hear passages like this, three or four words, and then all of a sudden explode with misquoting Scripture. Let's not all of a sudden go back and and YouTube these verses and all of a sudden explode with poorly unpacked theology and what it is that God has now called us to. But rather, if anything, let's look at verses like 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 16, and see that as God's people, we need to embrace the God-given roles that he has given to us based upon our genders as male and female. And so you see, both men and women have been given specific, unique roles that exist for the purpose of complementing one another. And when those roles get skewed or compromised, it can and will lead to the demise of the home, and it can and will lead to the demise of the church, which will ultimately lead to the unraveling of a society. You don't believe me? Study your history. You don't believe that the U.S. is heading down that path? Study your history. I've heard a joke recently talking about how often people think about the Roman Empire. I don't get that joke, but I'm going to tell you, you should probably study the Roman Empire. Focus on the fall and what was happening. Maybe go back and read about the Byzantines or the Ottomans and the Ottoman Empire. Focus on the fall and what led to their their demise. It's real simple. Order was confused and sent an entire empire into chaos. So for Paul, he didn't want men or women to bring shame upon their church. That wasn't his hope for the Corinthian Christians. He certainly didn't want them to bring shame upon Jesus Christ. So he calls the people of God to maintain their call, to maintain biblical order, and to seek to act and dress in such a way that brings glory and honor to God, both in their home and in the churches, in how they dress, how they act, how they speak, and how they behave. And yet here we are today in a world and a culture that seeks to blur those lines. My prayer is that we would hear the words of Paul, be faithful to the roles that he has given us, and that we would live out the order that we see according to his word, so that in our marriages, in our homes, and yes, even in our church, that God and God alone is glorified. That is what Paul hoped 
for ordered worship. He wanted ordered worship so that the people of God would be edified as they seek to honor him. To God be the glory for his plan. To God be the glory for his work. Let's pray together.